Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The documentary Liana is streaming now on Amazon Prime. It's a tender story about a group of orphan children in Swaziland who create their own fairy tale. When the film was released in 2018, I spoke with the creators, Amanda and Aaron Cobb, in our WABE studios. Later this hour, we'll hear how they blended documentary with the collective storytelling of the orphaned children. First, whenever I hear that music, I want to be in the room where it happens. And after a 17-month delay, you can be in the room at the Fox Theater, where the Hamilton National Touring Cast is performing Lin-Manuel Miranda's multi-award-winning musical through September 26th. The cast was supposed to take the stage in March of 2020 here, but the show was postponed due to the pandemic, and over the last year, excitement about Hamilton has further grown thanks to the release of a film stage production with the original cast available on Disney+. Plus. There is nothing like seeing the show live. Jared Dixon portrays Aaron Burr here in the live performance. He joins me now via Zoom with an ensemble member who is an Atlanta native, Keontae Thomas. Welcome to City Lights. Hello, thank you for having us. Hello. Jared, for listeners who have not witnessed the brilliance of Hamilton, how would you describe it? Hamilton is the story of Alexander Hamilton until the musical, one of our lesser celebrated founding fathers, whose history was caught up in scandal between a uh, questionable relationship, uh, uh, adulterous relationship with Mariah Reynolds and his untimely death at the hand of Aaron Burr from a fatal duel. The, the story of America then 
is told by what we call America Now, which is an array of colors of cast members and a diverse cast. As many people know, all of our founding fathers are white men, and in our show, they're portrayed by people of color, um, as well as the Skyler sisters are portrayed by people of color. And our full company has on display the full array of America. America itself. Now, you play the role of Aaron Burr. In the show, how is the relationship between Hamilton and Aaron Burr portrayed? In, in real life, they were more like um, work buddies. They spent a lot of time at work in their, in their early 20s as lawyers, um, working on a lot of the same cases or around the same cases uh, in the legal field. And as Hamilton's political star started to rise, as he was the right-hand man to our first president, George Washington, Aaron Burr found his way to politics a lot slower. And as they became more divergent in their paths, their friendship also became more divergent because their political views pit them against each other often. And because of their very temperous personalities, they ended up having a falling out later in their careers, which led to Hamilton going against Aaron Burr in an election for the presidency and going in support of his then political rival, Thomas Jefferson, which put a strain between the two of them that led to a conflict that ended in a fatal duel that killed Hamilton. It sounds like you've done a fair amount of research. Yeah, a little bit. They're, they're portrayed more as friends in the musical, as closer friends who, who know more intimate things about each other and uh, have experienced some of the highlights of each other's lives and the highlights and lowlights. In 2015, Leslie Odom Jr. played the role of Aaron Burr in the original cast. Right. He won a Tony Award for Best Actor in a Musical. He is an astonishing talent. Pretty big shoes to fill. Uh, how did you take from what you saw in his portrayal and make it your own? I just allow my, myself to to feel the role the way I need to. For all the amazing things that Leslie Odom Jr. is, he is not Jared Dixon, and I'm not Leslie Odom Jr. So I, I do my best to just be authentic and do things that are, are akin to my abilities um, and to my talent, and uh, I just let that speak for itself. Yeah, because I could see where it would be intimidating, if not downright crippling, to try and rid yourself of his portrayal. But you have to. It's not my job to compare myself to him, and that's for the audience who've seen the show five or six times or two times, or if you've only seen the Disney Plus. And my, my job is to just do the best I can. I appreciate Leslie for opening the door for people like me. Uh, his, his, his talent, like you said, is um, very dynamic, and uh, he's a powerful performer, and he's an inspirational person in, in my career. I just try to honor the work the best I can with my abilities and um, put my best foot forward every night. Well, I think that part of the brilliance of the work 
is that you don't need the original Broadway cast to feel the impact and beauty of the show. You're a very strong touring company, a very strong cast, and the show is really the star. Yeah, thank you. That that's uh, very true. Hamilton is is great on its own, and uh, the original company they will always be one A for you know every company that that follows, um, and they'll always be the inspiration. They'll always be our the original people that we think of. But the show lives and breathes just like our you know America. The show changes based on the perspective that we take each year and the things that we go through. Um, I'm sure not having theater for 17 months changes people. Okay. Um, so, you know, I hope that, you know, when people come into the theater, they're able to see it with new light. Keontae, can you tell us about the audition process and how you landed this ensemble role? Um. Yes. So my audition process started in 2018. I was just new in New York at that time, and I was auditioning for everything. The first time I went in for Hamilton, I got typecasted out. For those who don't know what typecasting is, basically you give your headshot to the audition um, advisor or whatever, and they give it to the people at the casting that's like behind the table at the audition. They look through your headshot and resume and see if you fit the part. If you don't, they just send those headshots back out. So basically, I got typecasted out. I didn't know anything about Hamilton at the time. I was just really auditioning for anything on Broadway at the, at the moment. Then I went away to do a regional show called Hairspray at North Shore Musical Theater. And I got an agent from there, came back to New York. The agent put me in for an appointment for Hamilton. At the moment, I still didn't know what Hamilton was. I just knew that it was the biggest show on Broadway. So I went in for that. I really went into it like a dance class because the audition was was pretty long. It was pretty, you know, intense with um, Stephanie Clemens, who is a great job. I love auditioning with her because she just really treats it like a dance class. And I'm a dancer first. So from there, they told us that they are looking for people for a boot camp process. Basically, the boot camp process with Hamilton is where they choose four girls, four guys, to learn like the big musical numbers in the show to see if you can handle it. And then at the end of the week, basically you go on a, like a list. In the boot camp, they just said, you know, thank you. Thank you for your time. You know, we'll reach out if we need you. That was in March of 2019. I didn't go back in for Hamilton until I think August. So that was my audition process. And it was, I thought it was very much meant to be because that's very rare that a company literally seeks out for a African-American, preferably a dark-skinned African-American woman for a show. That's very rare. But such fierce competition and so much, so much work you put in in boot camp. And initially you're rejected simply on the basis of a headshot. What advice would you give to an aspiring performer, an aspiring young performer? I would basically just give the advice that you have to, first of all, you have to know what you want. Because at the first time I went in for Hamilton, I didn't even know anything about it. And then when I did boot camp, I realized like, this is the show for me. I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. 
So I guess that's pretty much how I went about it. So in my second round of auditions, I just kept thinking like, this is for me. So every time I go into the room, into an audition room, I'm not necessarily auditioning. I'm just showing them, I'm just giving them what they wanted because they called me in. So I'm just basically like a talent show, basically. So um, I would just tell people for auditioning wise, make sure you're always prepared because you never know when you may be called to do something or you never know what room you'll be in. And I always look at it as booking the room. Don't think of booking that audition because of course in the Broadway world, there isn't just one audition. There's always multiple callbacks or whatever. So focus on booking the room, the people behind the table, because those are the people who will put you in for other roles and other shows because they remember your performance in the audition room rather than you changing yourself to fit a specific audition call. Just be yourself and book the room as a person, as a human being, rather than just the actor. Wow. I admire that determination and and strength that you showed because Thank it takes you. it takes a lot. So what's it like to perform at the Fox Theater in your hometown? It's amazing. It's really overwhelming, I would say. Um I didn't really know how how I would really take it all in. It's been a lot of work because I am from Atlanta, so I get called to do a lot of things, even like back at home, like just being with my family sometimes or not being able to be with my family because of my work schedule. But when I step out on stage, I pray and I just thank God for the opportunity to do this in my home city. And just the fact that I can possibly touch somebody that's seeing the show for the first time, because when I was younger, all only thing that I knew about was the Fox Theater. That's the best. I didn't know about Broadway. I knew about the Fox Theater. So I want to be that person that a little kid sees and like, oh, she's from Atlanta and she's doing what she does and she's doing it amazingly. Words can't really explain how it feels to be performing at the Fox, being from here, living here while we're here for a certain for a longer time than I usually sit down. So it's been very amazing and truly blessed to be able to do this. Oh, have family and friends come to see you perform? Oh, absolutely. I have someone probably every day that's told me like, okay, I'm, I'm at the show today. Like they've been soaking it up for sure. Being able to come see me in Atlanta for sure. Great cheerleaders. <laughs> Jared, I share with you a love for the musical Ragtime. I read that that's your all-time favorite. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm biased because my dad was in the original company of Ragtime on Broadway. So. Oh, really? Yeah. I saw it with my husband. What year would it have been? Uh, 90, it would have been 97 or later. 97. And, oh my God, by the introduction, I was weeping so hard. <laughs> what was your dad's role? Uh, my dad understudied Booker T. Washington, and he was in the Cole House Gang. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, we heard Audra McDonald. It was the first time I had become acquainted with her. And let's just say she was unforgettable. Yeah, absolutely. So you played Cole House in your school production, mm -hmm. and then your professional career began with original production of, of Ragtime. Yeah. You've been 
in diverse casts. What is it like for both of you to be in this cast with such a wide array of people represented? I've honestly just learned so much about people and about the world and what it looks like outside of my bubble and my personal experiences. Um, I've learned to make space for other communities' uh, experiences and other communities' struggles and traumas and also their brilliance and their excellence. Just having seen on display the, the different cultural backgrounds that we come from in the show every night and then also experiencing their lives outside of the show, how that affects the people that I get to, to work with. Working in diverse cast has made me a better performer and a better person, I think more than, than any other experience. In this. I mean, I come from a very diverse place. Uh, Queens is per square mile the most diverse city in the world or something like that. Or oh, I know. Something like 130 languages spoken. Right. <laughs> so um, being, being from Queens, it's just a continuation of my my acceptance and appreciation of, of other cultures and other people. And, uh, you know, I take that with me every day. Keontae, have you ever been with such a diverse cast? Um, the only other show that I've done is Hairspray. It was at a regional theater. And of course, that is black and white. So it was different because we're playing our races on stage than this cast. We're not playing any specific race. Technically, we are, but we aren't. So, yeah, it's very different um, than any other show I've ever seen in general because literally the races are, they don't matter technically when you're booking the show or when you're in the show in general. You're just all just playing human beings. And what each of you has said really attests to why this musical is perfect for audiences of all demographics and age groups. Mm -hmm. Hamilton is about American history, and the musical itself has made a historic impact. Thinking about the past year and a half and some of the tragic events, our reckoning with racial injustice, do you feel like you're taking part in something historic when you are on stage? Yeah, I, I certainly do. I think that as long as we're changing hearts and changing minds, that's history making itself. I've heard stories from fans about people who were not very politically involved until they saw Hamilton or didn't have much consideration that they were politically involved for the other side of the aisle and the fact that these are all, you know, they're all just humans. Politicians are humans first. They bring their drama to work. They bring their issues with each other to work just the same as we do. And I think more now than ever, we are commenting on just like that experience, especially seeing how divergent our two most popular parties have become and how they create stalemates between each other and how they go back and forth on policy and, and, and things of that nature. So I don't think we're answering any questions. We're just putting a microscope on 
that American experience, you know, if that changes hearts to get out and vote or that if that changes hearts to be more politically involved or um, to be more active on their local levels and um, with national elections and things of that nature, then, you know, we're making history every day. The art is just the art. It's, it's for enjoyment. It's for entertainment. It's for, it's group therapy. But once it, it's permeated into people and then it becomes the people's actions and experiences and choices, then that's when history is made. Actor Jared Dixon portrays Aaron Burr in the musical Hamilton with ensemble member and Atlanta native Keontae Thomas. You can see Hamilton at the Fox Theater through September 26th. In a moment, we'll revisit my conversation with the filmmakers Amanda and Aaron Kopp, creators of the documentary Liana. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The documentary Liana is about a group of orphaned children in Swaziland who create their own fairy tale. When the film was released in 2018, I spoke with the creators, Amanda and Aaron Cobb, in our WABE studios. Aaron began explaining how they blended documentary with the collective storytelling of the orphaned children. The kids who tell the story in the film are just this really sort of beautiful, complex bunch of people, and we wanted to tell a story in which their voice could be front and center, and we wanted it to be a film that they could be proud of, and. So we decided to trust fiction to bring us truth about these kids, them having experienced quite a bit of trauma early in their lives. And so, yeah, we weave back and forth between the documentary about the kids' lives and this fictional story that they create about this really cool young girl named Liana. Yes, and the storyteller is central to this. Mm -hmm. She visits the um, orphanage where they live, which seems like... A very lovely place. Yeah, I mean, it it's is. not the, you know, sort of stock images we have mm-hmm. of some pathetic place. They right. appear to be very well cared for. Um, they come from tragic stories. But 
enter the storyteller, and we have a clip from her now we're going to hear. This is wonderful to be with you today. I am a storyteller and I write children's books, but also I'm the person who's going to try and work with you in a very comfortable way so that you feel free to share your ideas. We're going to be writing the story of this young girl. We'll decide what she's like, what, um, where she lives, who does she live with, we're using pictures, we'll use words, bring all kinds of nice things so that the story becomes strong and it is our story. And there's no right answer or wrong answer, only good ideas. Okay. Yeah. Everyone should have a teacher storyteller. Oh, right, yeah. I could listen to her all day. She's she's a Klinam Chope is her name, and she's this she's a famous storyteller in Southern Africa. Um, and it, yeah, it was kind of a dream come true to to work with her. I had seen her perform uh, when I was growing up. I grew up in Swaziland, and and so I saw her. You know, she was sort of a part of my world growing up. And and uh, yeah, the fact that she said yes to working with us was made us really happy. And she she sort of brought the story together in a way that you know we would not have been capable of. Aaron, you and Amanda are both white. That's true, um, yes. <laughs> and as you mentioned, you grew up in Swaziland. How did that happen? Uh, well, <laughs> I was six when I moved there. Uh, my parents moved, and I uh, didn't really have a choice uh, <laughs> at the time. But, uh, yeah, it was a beautiful, lovely place to grow up. My dad grew up in Zambia. Um, <sighs> my mom's from California, and they sort of lived in a bunch of different places. But, um Swaziland is a really, it's a beautiful country. It's a very unique place, but it's, it was a great place to be a kid, for sure. And how did you come upon this orphan home and, and these children? So we've been going to the orphanage for about 14 years now. We've mm -hmm. been going back together every couple of years. So we've known the kids in the film since they were little. Zoeli was five, I think, when we met. Yeah, he's the one who really inspired the film. When he was that young, he spoke almost in poetry. He was very, Aww. he was brilliant and inspiring even that young age. Yeah, well, they are all, I mean, so endearing. Just want, come here, live in my house, be with me. Although, I mean, they are doing a very good job in that home, it seems, from raising them. Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place. The women who run it are, are exceptional. Who is there a social service agency, a religious organization? Who sponsors that home? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a local Swazi organization. Um, it, does, it is a religious organization, has religious affiliates, but it also is supported by a number of different you know, churches and individuals all over the world and a bunch of nonprofits as well. So let's go back to uh, letting the children tell the story and create the story with the storyteller. Um, I love that she decides the protagonist should be a girl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't seem to get any pushback from mm -hmm. the boys. Most of the kids in the film are boys, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and they don't seem to mind that. Um, watching this film, something that came to mind was a book I read many years ago. Maybe you've read The Uses of Enchantment by Bruno Bettelheim. No, I haven't. It's a child psycho I'll have to add that to my list. Child psychoanalyst. It's not mm. a very long volume, but he writes about how children use fairy tales mm. and the grim ones, you know, mm -hmm. those horrible, scary ones um, that we all learned about growing up, but how fairy tales help children understand things like 
loss and death. And through this, they're able to interpret and also maybe inject, interject their own experience, as in this case. One of the things that I thought was so shocking you bring out in the film, 25% of the population of Swaziland is HIV positive. Yeah, it is. It is a uh, staggering. It's pretty. It's pretty intense, um, and that's you know it's an important part of the background of the story because that's obviously sort of the environment where the kids live. But um, we do sort of intentionally live that leave that in the background because while while that's hard to wrap your brain around, that's not really how the kids identify themselves. That's not how. That's not their story. But uh, yeah, it is a sort of a, a, a tough thing to reconcile with. <sighs> I'm curious, I guess, Amanda, this would be a question more for you about the move from documentary, film documentary, real people, to the animated scenes and storytelling with the Liana character. It, it's seamless in viewing. I'm sure the editing was uh, quite a task. Yeah. But how did, how did you decide which should be what? Mm. Yeah, the editing was a very long process, uh, going back over and making changes for years, really. Um, how many years were you working on this? The film, we were working on the film for eight years total. So it's been dominating our adult life, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a huge part of it is our animation artist, Shof Coker. Yes. He uh, is just incredible and was a, a, a gem of a discovery for us. He worked really hard to both bring really distinct, um, just the feeling of Swaziland to the animation. And he worked with hundreds of reference images, getting the look just right and I think that's part of what helps it blend with the documentary footage but we also put a lot of effort into transitions whether it be through color or composition or he just was constantly responding to the footage as we decided what how, how the animation was going to be structured. How did you come across him? I saw an interview with him on africandigitalart.com <laughs> yeah and the way he talked about his passion for representing Africa positively that and then his his 3d digital sculptures just completely won us over so we decided he was the one and we just had to convince him of it so. oh well the the work is gorgeous as is the music Philip Miller oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah he's a South African composer he's a, he's a genius just beautiful. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz is here with you. And filmmakers Amanda and Aaron Kopp talking about their beautiful film, Liana. So the story the children tell is loosely a parable on the HIV epidemic, but as as you said, you wanted that more to be in the background because really what they are dealing with are those life and death struggles, you know, children imagining battles. We have a clip in which the children begin to tell the story of their 
self-titled character, and I love this part. It's thunder and lightning. Let's hear it. She lives in a small homestead in a village in Switzerland. The class decided she has two brothers. It was starting to thunder. Boom, 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 boom. Like when they are beating drum. Boom. Kiana's brothers were ready to come out. And our mother was having big, big pain. And then as the twins were coming out, it went boom, 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 boom. There were just two things. That means twins. The brother with twins. The baby is dead to cry. Mwah, 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 mwah. They named the twins Kutuma and Umbane, which means thunder and lightning. Okay. I think it is so remarkable that immediately they did not want Liana to be alone. Hmm. So the mother gives birth to twins, you know, insurance that there's not one, but two other relatives mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that she will have. And then they want to create this, okay, let's say Grimm's fairy tale, kind of, you know, thunder and lightning in the dark sky. It's so imaginative. I had to wonder, was there any script? Did you script anything here for them? No. It's they Oh my. Well, first of all, they don't watch very much TV. <laughs> and, the, and there were some twins that were just born in the community, oh. so twins were on their mind. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, knowing all the backstory and and each of their individual experiences, you can sort of see the references they pull, you know, to create this fictional world. But Mrs. Mplope, the, the teacher, she did a really wonderful job of, of kind of creating um, like a template. So, for example, she would say, okay, well, now Liana needs a sidekick, so let's talk about that. Right. And then they would all sort of vote or come up with, a, you know, who the sidekick was, which, of course, is this awesome big gray bull. I love that bull. <laughs> based, of course, on their on the bull at the farm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so she kind of provided the structure, but they all of the details and all of the color and the characters and all the action is, is really just the kids. I mean, they, I mean now that's why we made a film about them because they're cool and they have cool, crazy ideas. You know? And so, um, matter of fact, it really tugged at my heart uh, when they come up with a part of the narrative in which Liam's father drinks. He drinks too much and he goes to clubs and doesn't come home till the middle of the night and then he beats them and he has HIV and he dies hmm. and then the mother is stricken um, I, I mean but they seem so accepting H have these children been undergoing counseling I mean I would think the trauma they emerge from must just be incomprehensible. Yeah, it's heavy. They've all seen things that kids that age shouldn't experience. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a counselor that works with them regularly. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the, the moms who care for them have quite a bit of support as well, just sort of psychosocial support and, and guidance in, um, you know, how to deal with uh, people who have experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are a great example of just how resilient kids can be and how even though they've experienced, like Amanda stu- said, stuff that, you know, they shouldn't have, they still have, um, you know, a ton to offer and they have really rich, wonderful imaginations. The last thing I, I was hoping you could answer is the executive producer is Thandi Newton, and uh, she's famous for Mission Impossible and Westworld. How did she become involved with Liana? So Erin worked on a film called Saving Face a few years ago, and the co-director is this Pakistani woman named Sharmino Bejjanoy, who is friends with Tandy. And so when we told her we were looking for executive producers, she said, oh, I think my friend Tandy will like the film and sent her the trailer and the rest is history. She's, she's been amazing. She's just a rock star. She's just so smart and she's been really generous and supportive. And yeah, we were obviously very lucky to be a part of the film with her. Filmmakers Amanda and Aaron Kopp. Their documentary, Liana, is available for streaming now on Amazon Prime. Coming up, the American jazz singer and trombonist Aubrey Logan. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Singer and trombonist Aubrey Logan is a gifted jazz and soul-influenced performer. Hailed as the queen of sass by critics, her concerts mix impressive vocals with expert trombone playing. Logan is on tour now, and when she last visited the WABE studios, she spoke about her many influences. I was raised by two music educators. My parents are music teachers. And being around the house as a little kid, you just kind of accept whatever your life is, <laughs> as children do. And so my dad would play Beethoven and Stevie Wonder and Harry Good Connick taste. Jr. and Michael Jackson and, you know, Count Basie all in the same hour. Excellent. And that taste. wasn't odd for me. And it wasn't until later in life that I learned that multiple genres were weird to, to, to be one fan of, of so many different things. I didn't learn until later in life that it was that, you know, a lot of country fans aren't fans of hip hop and vice versa. Because growing up as a kid, I liked both. And so I... Um, Isn't that unfortunate? <laughs> I mean, that we have to be categorized or that music has to be categorized. Um, it, it is, but, you know, it is unfortunate, but I also don't think it's necessarily true. So I'm not too worried about it. And and is that's why I can safely still call myself a jazz musician, even though I'm playing pop songs and in a, you know, with a jazz aesthetic or playing R&B and, and uh, jamming. It's still an element of improvisation in within an element of structure, which really that's what jazz was founded on. You are a virtuoso jazz trombonist. Thank you. No small feat. And um, 
the trombone is one of the more difficult instruments to play well. Did you study classical too? No? No. um, I was singing before I was playing the trombone, and I was singing in musical theater as a kid. And then when I was about 12 years old, I kind of stopped doing that. And long story short, I was a middle school student, not at lunch with my friends, because all my friends were in band. And Ah. when you're that age and you're not at lunch with your friends, that's a major crisis. So (laughs) the, the problem was solved by joining band. And so I picked the trombone because I was a fan of James Brown, and I was a fan of Chicago, and I wanted to be in the jazz band. So I did... I did my duty with studying some sort of classical music at a really low level as a kid. But uh, even when I went to college, I didn't study classical. I technically studied jazz trombone. And um, and so I can fake a classical concerto <laughs> a little bit. But I certainly won't pretend that I, that I really know what I'm doing. Well, <laughs> your recording, Impossible. Mm-hmm has some classical touch to it. We're going to listen to a little bit of the Habanera from Carmen. Here's Aubrey Logan. to Aubrey Logan's take on the habanera from Bizet's opera Carmen. You have such a fabulous voice, and I know you have been called a top-notch vocalist. (laughs) We've established that you are a trombonist, Mm -hmm. you're a songwriter. Maybe this is a good time to listen to Pity Party. Thanks, yes. I'm a big fan of Pity Party because I wrote it in a room um, having a pity party. And then it kind of, you know, it snapped me out of it. We've all been there. We've all been there. We all feel sorry for ourselves sometimes. This this may be my favorite track. (laughs) One, two. Well, my pity party's over and I'm sorry it went so long. Too bad you couldn't make it, but it really wasn't all that fun. Whoa, misery sucks to be me, waiting for the sun. Well, my pity party's over, ain't too glad that that's all done. I wanted to tell you not to leave me in my bottle of tears, but the eagle said get out and go home. I should put on my pants, get over it, but I just want to eat a pint of ice cream in the dark all alone. Oh, when I'm sick, I sit and solo. Kim first, lyrics or music? Always music in my world. Um, I haven't had a lyric first songwriting experience until I wrote with someone else. <laughs> so when I write alone, it's um, melody and harmony implies itself immediately and rhythm and, and words. Sometimes I'll have like one phrase and I'll write around that. So I had I had the word pity party. I mean, that was an inspired kind of subject to write about. But even the 
even the melody and harmony and rhythmic aspect of the song was dictated by that idea. And it takes me ages to get the lyrics right. Aubrey, in an interview with your alma mater, the Berklee College of Music in Boston, you said that you thought your talent and skill were enough to get you noticed as an artist when you were starting out. That's what you thought one needed, but (laughs) turned out not to be the case. Correct. (laughs) Would you elaborate? Well, talent and skill are important, and they're, I I would still say it's a prerequisite in a lot of situations, but it certainly wasn't what, it wasn't enough to get me noticed as an artist in, in, the world I moved to, which was which was Hollywood and in the entertainment industry. Um, and I learned that you have to communicate with your audience who you are in an easy to understand way. And as much as I love so many different types of music and as much as it makes sense to me, it doesn't always make sense to somebody else until you show them what you are. So I learned to accept the fact that my quirky sense of humor translated to people and they liked it. And I got over myself enough to feel comfortable having that on a show. And I started to look, even even allow myself to look the way I feel most myself. Um, Which is what, I mean, you look so lovely. Oh, and, well, thank you. and it's a very glamorous photo <laughs> on the album. We'll draw a little bit from, from inspiration's such as Liza Minnelli, who who I'm a big fan of her style and all the styles that she's kind of exemplified back in back in the 60s and 70s, and translate that to people um, in a visual way. I'm not I'm not a visual thinker at all, and I've learned that a lot of people are. So just give. I I had to learn that branding yourself as an artist, especially as an independent artist, which I am, it required a lot of thought and it required a lot of work. I think a great example of taking a classic. Mm-hmm. And making it your own was your arrangement and um, duet with Casey Abrams of California Dreamin', which um, I told you when when I was 12, I remember when (laughs) that album came out with the Mamas and the Papas. Mm -hmm. And you have what feels like a prayer in, in this song. Let's listen to this rendition with Aubrey Logan Casey Abrams of California Dreaming. All the leaves are brown And the sky is gray I went for a walk On a winter's day Ooh, you know the 
Regionalize it cold. Regionalize it cold. Knows I think I'm gonna stay. Thinks I'm gonna stay. California California dreaming on such a winter's day. Such a winter's day. How did you happen upon that take? (laughs) Um, Actually, I've been up been on tour with this group called Postmodern Jukebox quite extensively and Casey of course has as well and one time I was in Belfast Casey was on the tour with me and I was actually pretty homesick that day and uh, we had oh man the pipes burst backstage we were changing our gowns in the middle of like uh, of a, like a, a three or four inch flood with our high heels and everything and I just started to we were listening to music doing our makeup and I was listening to Jose Feliciano sing California Dreamin', which is one of my favorite versions of the song. I mean, everybody's done this song, but, uh, and, and I started singing it and Casey had bought this Irish instrument or something. And we started, (laughs) we started jamming together on it. And I was, and we were thinking about California. We were, we were literally dreaming about home. We were in Belfast and we missed California and we were singing the song. And I was making the album at the time. And I was thinking, I do want to put one more cover on this. And I would like to actually do a duet on this album with someone. And that was it. And so we were just kind of almost meditating over California dreaming in that dressing room flooding you know, itself that day. And when we got back to LA, we got in a studio with just me and Casey and my producer, Dale, just the three of us and a cameraman, four of us. <laughs> and we recorded it in one take and had the camera on it. That's what the video is. It's just a video of us doing the actual recording. Um, it's not, it's not like lip synced or anything. And we, Casey played keys and I played trombone and we sang together and that was the take. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned Scott Bradley and his postmodern jukebox. Has working with him helped you find footing in your career? Absolutely. It is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, Scott is of the mind that the more the merrier. So... (sighs) If you are a guest with Postmodern Jukebox, as I am, as every singer with Postmodern Jukebox is, it's not a band, it's a large universe. (laughs) If you're a guest with that group, then you gain their fans who, who, you know, follow everyone. They're, we're like Pokemon characters, you know, they got to catch them all. They got to catch us all. And so they find us on our own uh, social media and our own website and they come to our concerts. It always happens. So... I have Scott to thank for a lot of things, and he highly encourages any guest with Postmodern Jukebox to be doing their own thing, which we all were initially anyway. And this is just, it's like we're in one, I'm in just this big happy family of PMJ (laughs) Pokemon characters. (laughs) It sounds like you don't have much reason for pity parties these days. Oh, no, not at all. And and I really don't think anyone ever has a reason for a pity party. That's why I wrote the song. It's it's a little tongue in cheek. Don't take don't take me too seriously. But I'm I'm as happy as could be. The versatile Aubrey Logan. More information about Logan and her music is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The Morehouse College 
Human Rights Film Festival begins this Thursday. The festival will focus on social justice and global issues through documentaries, features, and shorts. Over the course of three days, 87 films on such diverse topics as immigration, healthcare, race, gender, identity, and much more will be screened. Opening night will feature works by students and alumni from Morehouse, Spelman, and the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Discussions with filmmakers and some professors will follow the screenings. This year's festival is being presented virtually and in person at the Plaza Theater in Atlanta. To find out more about this schedule, their website is morehousehumanrightsfilmfestival.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m. we get crafty. We'll hear from artists with the American Craft Council's Southeast Craft Week in Atlanta. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.